Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. Welcome and thank you for joining me on this new podcast about old radio. How in the world are you? I do hope you are well. At the time of recording, it's all a bit lockdowny. So, um, what better time, I thought, to disappear into the past, into a simpler time, a time that paved the way for the radio, TV, and even podcasts that we are hopefully enjoying today. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Paul Carenza, and in normal time, for the past 20 years or so, I have worked as a comedian. I've got two half-brothers, uh, well, one brother, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's before the accident. Uh, that's me on the BBC New Comedy Awards uh, a few years ago. Also as an occasional broadcaster, like Pause for Thought on the Radio 2 Breakfast Show. Loving to be here, exciting days. Happy Christmas, Chris. Welcome anyway, Zoe. And, if this and is as one. a comedy writer. Now on BBC One, Miranda's up to no good. On BBC Two now a new series of Top Gear. Now on BBC One, Lee Mack is not going out. And yes, I re-recorded most of that for rights reasons, because this series is in no way affiliated to or commissioned by the BBC. Personally, I'm a big fan of the Beeb, and not just because they've employed me on and off over the years, and hopefully still on after this, but all of those bits of my career, which is mostly comedy, whereas this podcast is probably mostly history, I suppose, but also the many thousands of hours of TV and radio that I've consumed over the years, it's all down to a few brilliant people a hundred years ago. Apart from maybe John Reith and Marconi, I doubt you'll have heard of any of them. British radio is 100 years old, literally, now. This very month, as I speak to you, has one of several centenaries associated with it. In fact, just over a week from this moment, as I record this, it's one of the big 100th birthdays. June the 15th, 2020, Dame Nellie Melba launched Radio to the Masses with the UK's first major professional transmission. It's quite a mouthful. So if you time it right, and if you pelt through these early three or four episodes, then you can hear the Melba episode, I think it's episode four, on June the 15th. I will upload it on that date, exactly 100 years from the broadcast. Now, surely that deserves a telegram from the Queen. Now, we're going to take about 10 or 12 episodes just to get to the BBC's launch. So, you know, if you've tuned in thinking, oh, I might hear some old radio from the 1940s, the 1950s. No, that's far in the future. This episode itself will only just about get us to the 20th century, and the next episode will get us to about 1920, and we'll slow right down from there as we explore in the early 1920s the doubts and the battles, the quirks of fate, the relationships between the characters that led to and shaped British broadcasting as we know it. We're going to get to Captain Peter Eckersley, Britain's first DJ, who, after a few too many gins in the pub, he was the Chris Evans of his day, maybe, he seized the microphone. There may be some jamming. There may be some oscillation. And we'll meet Arthur Burroughs, a publicity man, not an engineer, who really becomes radio's first visionary, giving it the scope and the scale that it needs to step out of the engineering lab. The night shall be filled with music. So on this episode, if I'm honest, it's probably the most dense science we're going to have. In a way, I can't wait to get to next episode when the story really kicks off and our key characters come in. But your reward this episode will be an historical reenactment, probably the only historical reenactment you've ever heard made by the historical characters themselves. Yes, this week, Marconi plays Marconi. So, are you sitting comfortably? Then, just a minute, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. This is, or at least was, British Broadcasting. 
Where to start then? Well, how about uh, now? This. This is podcasting, audio, cast to a pod. Originally an iPod, now of course far beyond that. In fact, the BBC originally didn't like to say the word podcast on air because it thought of the word podcast as a brand name tied to Apple. You'll know all about why the Beeb doesn't advertise in a few episodes' time. So if that's podcasting, then what's broadcasting? It's casting something broad or wide. In the time period of our first few episodes, broadcasting isn't even a word. There was a word broadcast, you know, it was a farming word. You could scatter seed broadcast, as in far and wide. But no one talked of broadcasting or broadcasters or Mrs Brown's boys. It was a simpler time. Broadcasting as we know it is radio or TV, commercial or public service. TV's been with us since the mid-30s with a gap for the war when TV switched off. And in fact, the last thing played on TV in 1939 was a Mickey Mouse cartoon. And that was the first thing they played when it came back in 1946. But from the early 20s to the mid-30s, broadcasting in Britain was BBC Radio. And before 1920, Radio was generally a one-to-one business, so it's essentially walkie-talkies, but over an ever-increasing distance. Now, confession, I'm no scientist, I'm no technician, which may be why the microphone quality varies up and down. I'm sure we'll have audio geeks listening saying it needed that different make and that different setting. Feel free to let me know, by the way. I have no technicians here. This is me in my home studio, which is a wardrobe. But then again, John Reith chose a cupboard for his office at the very first BBC building, so if it's good enough for him. But yes, the science stuff is important. So how do we jazz it up? What would the BBC do to sell you some science info? Let's have a top five countdown of the five scientists we can thank for wireless telephony. So we need a 1920s equivalent of the pick of the pops countdown. You know, it's pick of the pioneers, poor pickers, not off. In at number five, it's everybody's second favourite Morse, Samuel Morse. That's right, Mr Dot and Dash in the 1830s sending telegraph signals and, of course, SOSs. Pulses of electric current sent along wires with an electromagnet at the receiving end telling you what was what or dot was dot. It's used on ships to begin with. And then news, journalism, that's why we call it the wire service. You know, I heard it on the wire wiring someone some money. Even wiretapping, that comes in in the 1870s when rogues learn how to connect wires to a telegraph in the American Civil War to intercept a message intended for elsewhere. But look, this is wires. We want to listen to the wireless. So lots of other names appear after Sammy the Inspector Morse. Familiar names like Alessandro Volta of Volts, Andre Ampere of Amps fame, George Ohm of the Ohms, and of course, Jeff Battery. All right, I made that last one up. All right, pot pickers. In at number four of our top five wireless way pavers, it's James Clark Maxwell. This Cambridge physics legend is pick of the profs with electromagnetic waves, which in the 1860s he predicts, reckoning they're similar to light waves. But for him, it's all a theory. We need someone else to put them to the test. So 20 years after Maxwell, Thomas, quite famous Edison, makes an electrical current jump wirelessly in the air. But is Edison at number three? No, because at number three, it's... Yes, oscillating at three, the truth hurts for Heinrich Hertz. He's sending those waves that Maxwell only predicted and dreamt about. These long Hertzian waves, waves that you could actually catch if you've got a receiver. The radio set is born. But Hertz doesn't see much use for his radio waves outside of the lab. He said, it's of no use whatsoever. And then he dies. 
Oh dear, he's a bit young for that too. He's only 36, but his name lives on as the Hertz. Everybody's favourite unit of frequency, meaning cycle per second. Then there's a megahertz, there's Hertz van rental, and the REM song, Everybody Hurts. But what to do with these waves now that we can send and receive them? Well, one of the first guesses was for lighthouses, if radio waves could signal wirelessly through bad fog. Then there's Nikola Tesla, nothing to do with the car or indeed the spaceship, who had another idea. Yes, the guy who put the AC in ACDC reckons in about 1890 that wireless power can receive and carry messages. He just doesn't quite know how. In fact, when he picks up Marconi doing a radio wave test, he spends his whole life thinking he's heard aliens. So Tesla is not at number two on our chart. It's Oliver Lodge clinging on at number two on the Smarty Chart, the countdown to wireless. Oliver Lodge, brother of Travel Lodge, picks up where Hertz left off. He's sending Morse code messages using wireless waves, thus inventing wireless telegraphy. But some say there'll be too many messages. So the Lodge Meister General, he's the first to tune a receiver to a particular transmitting station. Whenever we tune in, you can thank Oliver Lodge for that. He's also one of the few to realise that wireless radio has a benefit from reaching many people. Most see that as a downside, that it's a bit leaky. You know, a message intended for one person, if that spills over to many, you can't contain the message. But in 1907, Oliver Lodge prophetically writes, It may be advantageous to shout the message, speaking broadcast to receivers in all directions, such as for army manoeuvres, for reporting races and other sporting events, generally for all important matters occurring beyond the range of the permanent lines. So this is one of the first times that broadcast is used. Here is an adjective, not yet as a noun or a verb. Still, though, almost no one else could apply the technology for any real use. It would take an entrepreneur, possibly an Italian, to set these electromagnetic waves free. So, top of the pops, pick of the pioneers, it's Guglielmo Marconi. Not off. Of course, a lot of teenagers have had a radio in their room over the years, but Marconi, he's the first. As a teen, he sends radio waves across his bedroom, a transmitter and a receiver that rings a bell. And then outside in a field, wireless goes public with a bang. A gunshot. Marconi asks his assistant to fire this if the wireless signal reaches him across a field. And when that works, surely from then on, it's just about the distance. You know, over water, perhaps, across the world, maybe. Marconi sees something in waves that others don't. He sees a use for them. He tries to convince the Italian government that they have a military use to communicate. But they aren't that fussed, really. So instead, he comes to London. It's 1896. That's two years after Lodge was tuning in and Hertz was sadly tuning out. The 21-year-old Marconi comes to England with his mum, who's part of the Jameson Whiskey dynasty. So she's got cash and connections and she introduces him to the influential engineers of London. And at Toynbee Hall in East London, there's a very special box. Well, two special boxes that Marconi brings with him. They communicate wirelessly. From that moment on, with these two boxes, wireless is linked wirelessly, I guess, to London, to Britain. And everything from radio to TV to radar, military radioed, helping those marooned on ships, financial markets communicating, mobile phones, police radios, even this podcast, all of that comes from that demonstration, that 21-year-old with those two boxes in East London. The other thing that happens at this moment, it's the first time that we have something we still live with today, and that's Britain's broadcasters versus the government. 
That wireless demonstration is the start of an alliance between Marconi, on behalf of the broadcasters, and the GPO, the General Post Office. The government wing originally in charge of the post, but they've also seized control of telegraphy, of those Morse code dots and dashes. But within a few years, the post office, they're haranguing the Italian lad to share his patents with them, to help the entire industry develop and thrive. And so the rift begins between broadcaster and government. Marconi is no broadcaster, though. He's always been about ship-to-ship, or indeed ship-to-shore, communication. His dream, though, is always transatlantic wireless communication. After a couple of years, in 1901, Marconi tries this. He's going to try and send signals across the Atlantic, from Cornwall in Britain to Newfoundland in Canada. Now, all science of the day says this is impossible due to the curvature of the Earth. And yet he tries it. Knowing it may not work, a small crew join him, including assistant Percy Paget, who recalled in 1924 what it was like. The station at Baldew was instructed to send out the letter S, three dots, three short electric discharges at certain times. After some trials, Marconi was able to hear at St John's, Newfoundland, three ticks denoting the letter S and showing that these wireless waves sent from Baldew had travelled round the Earth for 3,000 miles. Until this point, 255 miles is the wireless record. But sure enough, across the Atlantic, they hear Morse code for S 25 times, as Marconi himself recalls here. It was shortly after midday on December the 12th, 1901, that I placed a single earphone to my ear and started listening. The receiver on the table before me was very crude. No valves, no amplifiers, not even a crystal. I was at last on the point of putting the correctness of all my beliefs to test. The experiment had involved risking at least 50,000 pounds to achieve a result which had been declared to be impossible by some of the principal mathematicians of the time. Marconi, Paget and Kemp even recreated that moment a few years after. This is historical reenactment by the people who were actually there. So we'll forgive any slightly dodgy acting. Listen to this, Kemp. Take the headphone. Can you hear anything? Yes, there it is. The letter S. Distinctly, Mr Marconi. Paget, Paget, come here and listen. Now, I've never noticed the waltz of the letter S before, have you? Now, every week on the podcast, we want to hear from you about your earliest broadcasting memories, either those from childish encounters with radio or TV or old radio or TV you discovered later in life. And here's this week's. Hello, I'm Philip from Borehamwood in Hertfordshire. I grew up, however, in Northwood in Middlesex in the house my parents bought from sitcom writer Johnny Spate. So comedy and especially BBC comedies have always been a fascination to me. One of my earliest memories of a BBC show was when I got my first what I assumed was just a toy radio at the age of eight. My excitement at realising it could actually be tuned in to pick up real radio stations, and then the joy at discovering Roy Hudd, June Whitfield and Chris Emmett in the weekly satirical show The News Hudlines that was on well past my bedtime. I'm not saying I was a bit of a comedy geek, but I'm possibly the only North London Jewish boy whose ideal for present was a family outing to be in the audience for a live recording of the show. 
Thank you, Philip Simon. He's a comedian himself. He's got a YouTube series, Schools Out Comedy Club, where kids send in their favourite jokes and he performs them for them. Uh, you can go to bit.ly slash schoolsoutcomedy for more. And we'll put that and his other YouTube channel and all the details in the show notes. Now, the house of Johnny Spate, well, there's some comedy heritage. He, uh, of course, wrote Till Death Is Do Part. Uh, but before then, uh, Morecambe Wise, he wrote for them, Frankie Howard, Arthur Askey. But before all of those people, the first entertainment on the radio, well, that happens from one Reginald Fessenden, right back at the start of the 20th century. The same year, Marconi sends and hears that transatlantic telegraphy, the Morse code S. Telephony, that's human speech, not just dots and dashes, is being transmitted one whole mile just down the American coast by Canadian inventor Reg Fessenden. His first very faint speech transmission requires high-frequency alternating current, which in simple terms means that his microphone burns red hot and nearly scars his cheek. Five years later, Christmas 1906, Fessenden brings the first entertainment on radio for ships near Brant Rock, Massachusetts. And it's got the works. It's got a record, Handel's Largo. It's got a live violin rendition of Oh Holy Night, played by Fessenden himself. And a reading of Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. Merry Christmas. The first radio audience of ship's wireless operators, well, they're delighted by the show. And I hope you've been delighted enough with this one. This has been episode one. Wasn't too painful, was it? It will get less sciency, more like a soap opera as we go on. While we're getting underway, some bonus thanks for the first episode. Thank you to Paul Gannon of the Cheap Show podcast for sharing with me some lovely old vinyl of old BBC recordings. Can't wait to delve into those as the BBC ages. Paul's Cheap Show podcast is a fab and fun and slightly filthy rummage around the cheap end of the aisle. Do go and have a listen. And just some recommendations on Twitter. Andy Walmsley and David Lloyd are the guardians of broadcasting past. Do check out their stuff. Further reading, Asa Briggs was BBC historian extraordinaire. His book, The Birth of Broadcasting, is just awesome. As is Tim Wonder and his books, 2MT Riddle and From Marconi to Melba. That's his new one. Plus, Mark Warburton, a big thank you to you for the loan of an old BBC yearbook from 1933. We're a way off that year yet, but bear with. Mark has also actually helped us with the title of this podcast, as did many other pals. It was a team effort, like indeed British Broadcasting. So next episode, we will meet two of that first team who made it all happen. They'll take radio from being a me-to-you narrowcaster to a me-to-them broadcaster. But as a me-to-you podcaster, like the BBC, which we are, of course, unaffiliated with, we don't do advertising. So if you would like to support the podcast, there are three ways, right? There's patreon.com slash paulcarenza for regular monthlies, if you would like to, with all benefits and patron-only goodies and things galore. There's coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash paulcarenza for tips for coffee, uh, maybe a tip now and then or a tip per episode if you can. It just keeps the podcast going, the web hosting costs, equipment, maybe even One day I'll be able to hire an editor or pay for access to more old clips and historical broadcasting brilliance. So if you can support on patreon.com slash Paul Carenza or co-fi.com, it's all dots and dashes still. The Morse code has not left us, has it? There is a third way that you can support, and that's to like, share, rate, review, subscribe. Just make sure you do all those things on wherever you got this podcast. Good ratings and reviews, they really make a huge and free difference in getting this out there. 
The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by Paul Carenza, with original music by Will Farber. Archive clips are, to the best of our knowledge, in the public domain, being as old as they are. But if you disagree and own any clips, do get in touch, accept our apologies, we'll humbly take them down. But also have our thanks for having such marvellous audio out there for us to hear and learn from. Stay informed, educated and entertained, and join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century.